Hello, and welcome to the Notable Speeches podcast. Today, an address from the man who could become the next governor of America's largest state by population, California. The current governor of that state, Democrat Gavin Newsom, is facing a recall election in a few days on September 14th. You may remember that in 2003, California voters removed then-Governor Gray Davis from office. Whether the attempt to recall Governor Newsom will be successful is by no means clear. Polling data is mixed, although Newsom does appear to have a slight majority of voters behind him. But the polls also suggest that if Newsom loses, the likely next person in line is Los Angeles-based radio talk show host and documentary filmmaker Larry Elder. But again, nothing is certain. Forty-six candidates are in the running, including 24 Republicans, nine Democrats, two Green Party candidates, one Libertarian, and ten others who didn't list a party affiliation. Voters will have two items on the ballot. First, should Newsom be recalled? And second, who, among the 46 people running, should replace him? And there is no runoff. The candidate with the most votes, even if it's not a majority, would win. In the address you'll hear in just a moment, Larry Elder, a Republican making his first attempt at public office, talks about why he got into the race and about what he sees as the major issues, education, crime, and homelessness. Mr. Elder, who is black, also talks about racial concerns in America, and he speaks about his upbringing in south-central Los Angeles. Larry Elder presented this address in July, just a few days after announcing his candidacy. He spoke at Freedom Fest, an annual gathering that celebrates great books, great ideas, and great thinkers. The 2021 Freedom Fest was held at the Rushmore Plaza Civic Center in Rapid City, South Dakota. This speech by Larry Elder has been abridged slightly for this podcast. Thank you so much. Please, please. I only have 25 minutes. You're cutting into my time. By the way, there's some people with some envelopes, because you may have heard I'm running for governor of California. I need you to throw a little something in the tip jar, otherwise I can't beat this man. Now, the reason I'm running, I was first approached to run by my friend and colleague, Dennis Prager at Salem. He said, Larry, a lot of people are asking me to ask you to run. And I said, hell no. I said, the California legislature is dominated by Democrats. When I say dominated, they've got supermajorities in the state assembly and a supermajority in the state senate. The Republicans don't even need to show up for work, and they can pass whatever they want, and they are. This governor is being recalled because of the way he handled the coronavirus. And I said to Dennis, you know, people are all upset. I get that. But when this thing abates, when people go back to normal, they're going to forget about why they were so angry. They haven't. Crime is through the roof in L.A., in San Diego, Los Angeles, year to year, shootings up, the quality of schools. There are 300,000 public school teachers in California. When I was preparing for my race, I talked to experts. Larry, at minimum, 5% of them are incompetent, at minimum. That's 15,000 teachers running through the classrooms of the public schools in California who are incompetent, miseducating, poorly educating, or not educating children. 15,000. Imagine if that were the LAPD. There's 10,000 cops. Imagine if 5% of them were incompetent, bad cops, planning evidence, racially profiling, using excessive force. Nobody would put up with it. 
We put up with 15,000 bad teachers? It's outrageous. 75% of black boys in California cannot read at state levels of proficiency. That's not a typo, 75%. You're covering your face, I'm not done. 50% of third graders cannot read at state levels of proficiency. I went to a high school called Crenshaw High School. Anybody see the movie Boys in the Hood? That's my high school. 2% are math proficient. This is outrageous. There was a study about where public school teachers send their own kids. 44% of Philadelphia public school teachers with school-age kids have their own kids in private school. 39% Chicago school teachers, public school teachers with school-age kids have their own kids in private school. Twice as many teachers, LAUSD, have their own kids in private school compared to families that do not have a public school teacher in it. What does that tell you? It's as if you opened up a restaurant, hung up a sign and said, come on in, just don't eat the food. <laughs> and the teachers union are adamantly, adamantly, adamantly opposed to school choice. Why? Because even if it's a charter school, the teachers are not automatic union members and they don't automatically pay the dues. So therefore, they are adamantly opposed to charter schools while putting their own kids in private school. That is one of the big reasons I'm running. When I was a kid, I went to four different high schools. Larry had some issues, we won't talk about that. But uh, I was bused from Crenshaw because I had exhausted all the Spanish. I made A's in Spanish. I thought I was a world beater. I went to a school called Fairfax. The kids were predominantly Jewish. I know that because during Yom Kippur, you could come to campus or not. Only two people came that day, myself and a janitor. <laughs> These kids were fluent in Spanish. I did not believe you could learn how to speak a language and, and attain fluency in a classroom setting. I thought you learned how to conjugate a few verbs, learn some nouns, and then maybe when you go to Mexico, you can put it all together. These kids were fluent. For the first time in my life, I got a D. Funny little thing, a D, I never, I never got a D before. I came home that first day and I was crying. I told my mother I thought I'd gotten ripped off. I said, I know I could have kept up with these kids if I'd had the same kind of demands placed upon me as long as they had. And she started crying too. And she said, Larry, I know your father and I should have put you in a better school. We didn't have the money. Maybe someday you can grow up and do something about it. Well, that someday is here. <laughs> Homelessness, out of control. I don't know if you heard about the latest statement that the governor just now made. He basically said, well, people who are homeless, they should come to California because that's where you have your dreams. Inviting people who are homeless to come to California. It is estimated that California has anywhere from 25% to 50% of the nation's homeless, and he's inviting more to come. And their solution is to build housing, which sounds on the surface like it might be a good idea, but if you haven't dealt with the underlying reasons about why people are homeless in the first place, building a home is not gonna do anything. You can't make them go, you can't make them stay. And furthermore, a bunch of other people from other states, cold weather climates are going, wait a minute, I can go to California and they'll treat me with compassion and care and I get a free home, come on down. So cops are telling me that a whole bunch of people on Skid Row aren't even from California. Crime. The voters foolishly voted for something called Proposition 47 a few years ago. It was sold and they bought it. And the idea was people who steal are stealing to support a drug habit. They shouldn't go to jail. 
They should go to rehab. The latter part makes sense. But what happened is, if you make it a misdemeanor, 950 bucks, by the way, you can steal that amount of money every single day. And if you get caught, they write you a ticket. They'll have to show up for court. So I spoke to the sheriff of LA County, his name is Alex Villanueva. And he said, they've taken away our stick. What's the incentive for somebody to go into rehab if the alternative is you go to jail? So you approach somebody on the street who's doing drugs, try to get him into rehab, and if I don't, what are you gonna to do to me? So all you've done is allow people to steal 950 bucks every single day, Targets, Walmarts, uh, Walgreens, all these stores have now closed in the Bay Area because people are stealing. Go online, look at video. People are just going out like this, walking by the guards. What are you gonna to do to me? Nothing, it's insane. And this business about cops being systemically racist, really? There's a wonderful article, I urge you all to read it, April 27, 2016, I know that because that's my birthday, in the Washington Post. Very long article, study after study after study showing not only the cops are not engaging in systemic racism, but if anything, the cops are more hesitant, more reluctant to pull the trigger on a black suspect than a white suspect. Another one, July 2016, same year, New York Times, front page, about an economist named Roland Fryer. And he just knew because of Freddie Gray and Michael Brown and Tamir Rice, the one that was in Cleveland with the, with the replica gun, all these so-called high-profile shootings, he just knew the police were using deadly force disproportionately against black people. So he did a study. He said it was the most surprising finding of my career. Not only were the police not engaging in this kind of deadly brutality against black people, they were more reluctant, more hesitant to pull the trigger on a black suspect than a white suspect, probably for fear that if they did so, they'd be accused of racism. It's a lie. And as a result of this lie, what are cops doing? Any cops here? You know what I'm talking about? Much of police work, most of it, is discretionary. You don't have to get out of the car if you don't want to, see something that looks suspicious. So people are just driving right on by, answering radio calls, and they're not engaging in what we call proactive policing. Bad guys know it, crime goes up, and guess who gets hurt? The very black and brown people that the left claims that they care about. This is what's going on, and it's absolutely outrageous. If anybody, anybody had a reason to think America was systemically racist, it's my father. My father left home when he was 13 years old, kicked out of the house by his mom. He was quarreling with his mom's then boyfriend. She had a series of boyfriends, each one more irresponsible than the other one. Came home one day, quarreling with the boyfriend. Mom sides with the boyfriend, throws my father out of the house, never to return. You're talking about a black boy, Jim Crow South, at the beginning of the Great Depression. My father became a Pullman porter on the trains. They were the largest private employer of blacks in those days. And he came out to California, to Los Angeles, on a run. And he couldn't believe that you could walk in the front door of a restaurant and get served. So he made a middle note, maybe someday I'll relocate to LA. Pearl Harbor, my dad joined the Marines. I said, Dad, why the Marines? He said, they go where the action is, and I love those uniforms. <laughs> Stationed on the island of Guam, World War II, in charge of cooking for the colored soldiers. My father can look at a cake and tell you what's in it. That's how good he is. War is over. He goes back to Chattanooga, where he met and married my mom to get him a job as a short order cook. And he's told to his face, we don't hire niggers. 
goes to an unemployment office. The lady says, you went through the wrong door. He goes out, sees colored only, goes through that door to the very same lady who sent him out. She just wanted him to know what the rules were. He came home, told my mother, this is BS. I'm going to LA, I'm gonna get me a job as a short order cook. Comes out to LA by himself, walks around, and he's told, you don't have references. My dad said, I need references to make ham and eggs? This time, one door, unemployment office. Lady says, I have nothing. My dad says, I'll sit there until you find something. My dad sat in a chair for a day, sat in a chair for half a day. She calls him up, I have something for you. It's a job at Nabisco brand bread cleaning toilets. My dad took that job for 10 years, took a second job at a second bread company cleaning toilets, cooked for a family on the weekends, and went to night school two or three nights a week to get his GED. That's why the man was always grouchy, he never slept. And I hated my father because he was so angry all the time. We'd do the slightest thing and he'd get the belt and whack us. And I just didn't understand why the man even had children if you're gonna treat them like this. So I'm 15 years old, my father started a little cafe. Unfortunately, I had to start working for him. So I worked for him from the time I was 10 years old until I was 15. My dad would get mad at me and would curse. It's a little diner, everybody can hear it. And I'm sick of him cursing at me. I'd love to tell you, I said to him, see here, you and I are gonna sit down and talk about whether or not we can have a mature relationship because I'm tired of the way you treat me. I couldn't say that to him, I was afraid of my father. So I walked out at 15 years old. Restaurant, little diner, was full of people, the, the waitress had called in sick, so I left my dad in this restaurant, full of customers. My dad came home that night and said, why did you leave? And I said, Dad, I got sick and tired of the way you spoke to me. My dad paid me $10 a day plus tips. He balled up the $10, he threw it at me on the bed, he walked out, and my father and I did not speak to each other for 10 years. When I say didn't speak, I mean nothing. I mean, not even, is it gonna rain? How about those Rams? What about the Dodgers? I said nothing to the man, and it was easy. He worked long hours, and I was in high school. I graduate from high school, I go to college in the East Coast, I go to law school in the Midwest. I would come back to visit my mom, of course, but I'd just make sure we were never in the same room. Not a big house, but we're able to avoid him. Now, I'm 25 years old. I have just passed the California bar, the Ohio bar. I'm making the equivalent of around 150K, and I should be living large, but I can't sleep and I know it has to do with my father. Not that I ever thought my father and I were gonna be friends, but I was in Ohio, I called my secretary, I said cancel my appointments for three days, I'm going to LA. Didn't tell my parents I was coming because I didn't want my dad to be ready for this summit. The restaurant closed at 2.30, I took a cab from LAX to the restaurant, I got there at 1.30, my dad was shocked to see me. He said, shall I put your bags in the back? I said, no dad, I'm only gonna be here for five or 10 minutes, I wanna tell you something. He said, okay, wait for an hour. So I said to myself, all right now, Larry, don't tee off on the man. Don't tell him everything he's ever done to you. Just give him the highlights, five minutes, out the door. He'll probably call you an ungrateful son, and then maybe you'll be able to sleep. So I sat there for an hour, and I said, okay, I'm gonna shut this down. I'm not gonna, not gonna jump all over him. So he sat down, and I jumped all over him. I teed off. If you're getting to know me, you know how I can go. So I told him every whipping, every spanking, anything he ever said to me. The time he whipped me in front of my cousin Elaine, that was embarrassing. I told him everything, everything, and I talked nonstop. He just took it. He just took it. Every now and then he would refresh his coffee and he would listen. Nonstop for 20 minutes. After 20 minutes, I was out of ammo. I had nothing else to say. And my dad said, is that it? <laughs> you stopped speaking to me for 10 years because of that? And I said, yeah. 
and for the first time I saw my father cry. I never thought the man could summon the ability to make tears. I, I didn't think he had the power. He said, let me tell you about my father. He said, you know your last name, Elder? I said, yes. He said, that's not the name of my father. I said, what? What's your father's name? He said, I don't know, never met him. He told me about his mom. She didn't work, series of boyfriends, each one more irresponsible than the other one. Elder was some dude in his life the longest who was physically abusive to him, uh, physically abusive to his, to his mom. And when he tried to stop his mom, he got his butt kicked. And then he came home, 13 years old, kicked out of the house because he's quarreling with his in mom. My dad and I talked for eight hours. He told me everything about his life, everything he ever did, everything he ever went. And the man got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and Larry got smaller and smaller and smaller. And now I'm crying. And I said, dad, please forgive me. And my father said, there's nothing to forgive. You didn't know, you were a kid. Just follow the lessons I've always given you and your brothers. Hard work wins. You get out of life what you put into it. He said, Larry, you cannot control the outcome, but you are 100% in control of the effort. And before you bitch, moan, and whine about what somebody did to you, go to the nearest mirror, look at it, and say to yourself, what could I have done to change the outcome? And finally, my Republican father said, no matter how hard you work, how good you are, sooner or later, bad things are going to happen to you. How you address those bad things will tell your mother and me if we raised a man. If anybody had a reason to talk about reparations, critical race theory, it's my father. My father believed in America. He believed in this country. My father would not allow us to be victims. My mother would not allow us to think of ourselves as second-class citizens. When I was in high school, we read a poem by a man named County Cullen. It goes like this. While riding through old Baltimore, so small and full of glee, I saw a young Baltimorean keep a looking straight at me. Now, I was young and very small, and he was no whit bigger, and so I smiled. But he poked out his tongue, called me nigger. I saw the whole of Baltimore from May until September. Of all the things that happened there, that's all that I remember. The teacher was furious. The class was furious. I was furious. The teacher talked about this is going to be a permanent stain on his psyche. He'll always think of himself as a second-class citizen. As I was coming home, I knew my mother was going to have a different take on the poem. I didn't know what it was going to be. So I walk into the house, mother's cooking a big pot of greens and frying some chicken wings, my favorite. I said, mom, we read a poem in class. I want to get your reaction to it. She said, what is it? It goes like this. Well, riding through old Baltimore, so small and full of glee, I saw a young Baltimorean keep a looking straight at me. Now I was young and very small and he was no whit bigger. And so I smiled, but he poked out his tongue and called me nigger. I saw the whole of Baltimore from May until September of all the things that happened there. That's all that I remember. My mother took the spoon out of the pot, hit it on the side and said, Larry, what a damn shame he allowed something like that to spoil his vacation. How many wings do you want? <laughs> Who would have thought just years after the election of the first black president, we're talking about this nonsense, critical race theory? Obama got a higher percentage of the white vote than John Kerry did. 2007, when Obama was running, Gallup did a poll. Obama's running for the nomination against Hillary and John McCain running for the nomination against Mitt Romney. How many Americans would not vote for a black president, asked Gallup? 5% said they wouldn't. How many Americans would not vote for a female? 11% said they wouldn't. 
How many would not vote for a Mormon? 24% said they wouldn't. How many would not vote for a man who would be 72 years old at the time he became president, assuming John McCain won? 42%. Obama's hurdle was smaller than these three white politicians. And we're talking about this? This is nuts. This is nuts. When Obama was running, he gives a speech before a historically black church. And he says, the Moses generation, referring to the generation of Martin Luther King, has gotten us 90% of the way there. My generation, he said, the Joshua generation, has to get us that additional 10%. I thought that was reasonable. 90% okay, 10% left to go. Because in 2002, Gallup did a poll and found out 8% of Americans believe Elvis is still alive. 4% believe if you send him a letter, he'll get it. So there's not a whole lot you can do about that. Fast forward, what does this man say? Racism is in America's DNA, said Obama. Really? First time Gallup ever asked, would you vote for a black president was 1958. 38% said yes. Most recently, only 3% said they would not. If racism is in America's DNA, how did the DNA change? It's crap. And the thing that's sad is Obama knows it's crap. When he was running, the first interview that he had with 60 Minutes was with a guy named Steve Croft. He wasn't the front runner yet, but he was coming. And Croft said to him, Senator, if you don't win, will it be because of racism? I'm at home by myself. And I said, let me see how this guy answers this question. This will tell me everything I need to know about him. And Obama said, no. If I don't win the nomination, it will be because I have failed to articulate a vision that the American people can embrace. I said, hallelujah. I'm not going to vote for a tax-raising, regulatory, expand-the-government Democrat. I don't care what race you are, but at least he's not what I call a victocrat. Fast forward, every race card he picked up, he picked it up. I mentioned already the DNA thing. Al Sharpton comes to the White House over 70 times. There's a place called Ferguson, he said to the United Nations. Ferguson, as you know, was a lie. Michael Brown did not have his hands up, did not say don't shoot. The cop was completely exonerated. Race card after race card after race card, because Obama realized in order for him to get reelected and for the Democrats to remain power, you have to tell 13% of the, of the electorate, black people and white liberals who are feel guilty, that racism remains a major problem in America, even though the man knows it's not true. It's disgusting. It really is. Somebody asked me about racism. I said, pick up your magic wand, wave it over America, and remove every smidgen of racism from the hearts of white people. Every smidgen, it's not gone. Do we still have 70% of black kids entering the world without a father married to the mother? By the way, that was 25% in 1965. You're telling me America's more racist now than then? Nothing to do with racism. It has to do with incentives. We have incentivized women to marry the government and allowed men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility with the welfare state. If you, if you wave the wand, do we still have 50% of black kids dropping out in many of our urban schools? Do we still have 25% of young black men in many of our urban cities with criminal records in jail, on parole, or on probation? Is it still the case that a young black man is eight times more likely to be murdered than a young white man? Is it still the case that the number one cause of preventable death for young white men are accidents, like car accidents? The number one cause of preventable death for young black men is homicide. 
almost always at the hands of another black man. If the answer to the question, if you removed everything, we still have those problems, then what are we talking about? Why don't we address what's real? Don't let them de deceive you. Don't let them delude you into thinking that systemic racism is a major thing. It is not. It is not. In 1991, a sociologist named Orlando Patterson, who's still at Harvard, said America, despite all of its flaws, is the least racist majority white society in the world, provides more opportunities, more benefits, more prosperity for black people than any country in the world, including all of those of Africa. Can we knock it off? Can we knock it off? May God bless you, and may God continue to bless the United States of America. I love you. I love you. California gubernatorial candidate and longtime nationally syndicated radio host Larry Elder speaking July 22nd at the annual Freedom Fest conference held near Mount Rushmore, South Dakota. According to polling data, Mr. Elder leads the large field of candidates vying to replace Governor Gavin Newsom if Mr. Newsom is turned out of office in a September 14th recall election. As always, we welcome your comments and suggestions about the Notable Speeches podcast. Email feedback at notablespeeches.com. You can follow us on Parler and Twitter at Notable Speeches. I'm Joseph Slife. Thank you for listening. <laughs>